Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pod Bless Canada, McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. I'm Brian Lee Crowley, Managing Director of the McDonald Laurier Institute, and I'm here today with Sean Spear, who is a Monk Senior Fellow uh, at MLI, uh, who handles, amongst other things, uh, leadership within the Institute on uh, domestic policy, fiscal policy, uh, management of the economy, etc. Uh, and uh, Sean and I are here today to talk a little bit about um, public attitudes, uh, the behavior of politicians, and how all those things affect the climate for business. And in fact, we're here to talk about um, the influence of the business community on political debate and decision making. So, Sean, if I could, uh, let me just mention that I suspect if you ask a lot of people in Canada, just ordinary people, not people in the political class, you said, is the business community influential on decisions that are made about taxation and so on? People say, oh, yes, you know, my heavens, the business community is really one of the most powerful voices in Canada. Uh, and you think about uh, often the example people will use will be the free trade election of 1988 in which the business community organized pretty uh, successfully to push the idea of uh, free trade and um, uh, were able, I think, to um, use their influence and prestige uh, successfully to win uh, uh, approval for the idea of free trade in Canada. Um, I think your view is that that was then and this is now, and that if you look at things like recent increases in the minimum wage, uh, the controversy over business taxation, um, uh, increases in um, personal taxation on high income earners, etc., that the business community has been pretty consistently losing arguments in the public sphere. Why is that? Well, I, I think it, it, it's important to step back and to understand um, both the, 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 the public policies that you're referring to um, that on, on the face of them appear to be moving in a direction that's contrary to the interests or contrary to the perspectives of uh, members of the business community. There's also the rhetorical poise that we're seeing from politicians. Uh, the, the Minister of Finance is, is referred to, quote, going after business. Um, uh, the Premier of Ontario has accused those opposed to the minimum wage hikes as, quote, bullying and even questioned, quote, their decency. And so I, I don't think there's, there's any doubt um, uh, that the standing, that the influence of um, the entrepreneurial class, uh, that the, the business community is at a, uh, at, at a low. And, and the question is, what's behind that? Is it simply a matter of uh, uh, politicians who don't see value in entrepreneurship? Is it simply a matter of partisanship or is there something bigger going on here? I think a lot of people would like to think it's the former. Um, you can take solace in that. You can think, well, there'll be an election in a year in Ontario or that there'll be an election in Ottawa in a couple of years and we'll just throw the bums out and bring in new, a, a new government and, and we'll get back to business as usual. Uh, I think that's wrong. Uh, I, I think that the politicians on these issues aren't leading the public. They're responding to a public impulse. And I, I think that's what the business community needs to understand. 
That's what the business community needs to confront. And setting aside the question of the business community for a second, well, those of us who believe um, that on balance, markets outperform the alternative, those of us who believe that markets can play a key role in allocating resources and creating opportunity, there's an onus, I think, on us um, to get at these issues that are driving politicians, that are influencing public policy. Um, because if we don't, uh, it seems to me that the risk is uh, we continue down a path um, that leads us um, ultimately less wealthy, less prosperous, and with fewer opportunities. Mm -hmm. And um, again, if we were to think about how the public thinks about these issues, um, it seems to me that um, they have not always been this skeptical. Uh, in, in fact, it seems to be something that's emerging in the last decade or so, maybe since the financial crisis of uh, 2008. Um, what's, what's your sense of the, the reasons behind the emergence of uh, the skepticism on the part of the public, which the politicians are responding to rather than leading? If, 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 uh, if I can... Uh, before speaking, I think, to the causes, if I can just affirm for the listeners um, the, the public impulses we're talking about, these aren't con this isn't conjecture on our part. There's some real empiricism, I think, showing this growing um, distrust, this growing aversion um, to business and markets. Uh, just a few examples. 70% of Canadians believe that almost all the economic gains of the past two decades have ended up in the hands of the 1%. Half of Canadians say they do not trust business, only slightly fewer than those who say the same about media and politicians. 54% of Canadians disagree with the notion, or pardon me, 54% of Canadians think high income earners should pay higher taxes, and 40% of Canadians disagree with the notion that, quote, most people are better off in a free market economy. So that's pretty compelling evidence um, that this, this in climate in which uh, the business community feels under siege isn't, isn't a, a simply a, been manufactured by politicians or a particular political party. There is something deeper here, and that's kind of what we're talking about. And, and do we know whether those kind of proportions have shifted over time? <laughs> yes, uh, and this gets to the matter, uh, question of causes. Uh, you know, what's interesting is we, people forget that, that this century began in the words of uh, Francis Bukayama as the end of history. Um, markets, business, entrepreneurship seem to have prevailed um, as the Cold War ended and, and capitalism seemed to be on the ascendancy. Uh, in 2001, just, a, just an example, a juxtaposition to some of the things I've, I've just cited, a US poll showed that Americans trusted business twice as much as government and media. More than 60% of respondents in a similar survey said that they trusted Microsoft quote, to do the right thing. At the time, that was nearly double the response for Amnesty International. So something, I think, has changed markedly from the beginning of the 20th century, or the 21st century to the present. And I think you're right to zero in on the question of what's behind that? What factors have contributed to this growing distrust and disconnect between the public and um, entrepreneurial entrepreneurs and, and the business community? And if I was advising someone in the business community, an industry association or something like that, 
I would be zeroing in on these factors and these broader questions and not focusing narrowly on this policy or that policy, because I think you risk missing this bigger picture. And, you know, before we dig in more uh, to that bigger picture, can we talk for a minute about why should people care? I mean, so business is not as well regarded as it once was. People don't trust uh, the leaders of the private sector. Um, gosh, uh, aren't leaders of the private sector being prosecuted for price fixing for bread? And, uh, you know, weren't bankers uh, bailed out uh, during the recession and automakers uh, uh, so that, you know, people who earned huge bonuses when times were good suddenly passed the bill to the taxpayer? I mean, aren't people pretty justified in feeling a bit annoyed about this? The short answer is yes. Um, as, as the, the factors that have contributed to this marked decline in trust and confidence in um, entrepreneurs and business and markets has some justification. Um, you mentioned a couple of examples, um, um, cases of bad actors. Um, um, the global financial crisis and the massive government intervention that followed, I think understandably, has people um, fe feeling less confident and more suspicious. Um, the fact that um, we see real evidence of wage stagnation in the U.S., I think, has come to color people's perception about markets, not just in the U.S., but around the developed world, including here in Canada. Growing concerns about unequal outcomes, um, I think, is part of the reason we've seen a greater emphasis on redistribution. You've spoken uh, in the past 12 months quite a lot about the decline in manufacturing um, employment uh, and, and how that has affected um, different regions and, and different um, groups of people, particularly those uh, without post-secondary education. You've also written, for instance, about labor share of national economy, uh, which has flatlined in some places and dropped in others, including here in Canada. Uh, and to say nothing of rising anxieties about automation and other technological-induced innovation. So I, 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 I don't think that the answer is to tell people that their feelings and that their sentiments are wrong. Uh, I think the importance here for um, those of us who believe in the, the value of markets, the utility of the market economy, to start to develop a program that speaks to these impulses, that speaks to these sentiments, because ultimately that's the only way uh, that we're going to affirm the public's support for the market system. Uh, and and, and I, I think that's, um, that's something that's in all of our, all of our interests. So uh, if we think a little bit more about this uh, decline in trust, I mean, we're talking about a decline in trust of, uh, of the leadership of the private sector. Um, I have to say that my impression would be that's not the only uh, people who have lost trust and confidence uh, uh, of um, the broader public. Um, not many people stand very high in the estimation of uh, public opinion. But trust is not something that we can, we can or should easily give up because it has benefits, doesn't it? Uh, I'm not saying that we should trust where trust is unjustified, but a society where trust is justified and exists has certain benefits and advantages over other kinds of societies. Exactly. Uh, 
there's been a considerable body of work. But let me step back. When we try to understand um, outcomes, different outcomes in different jurisdictions, there are various schools of thought. There's questions around institutions, something um, that, that uh, we talk a lot about here at the Institute. Um, there are questions around um, the, uh, the effects of, of uh, religious or cultural um, um, implications or, 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 or factors. Um, there's questions around the presence of certain types of resources as an explanation for, um, for different outcomes and, 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 and the role of ideas, um, uh, something that Teacher McCloskey has championed. But I think trust is an important um, part of the story here. Um, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. High trust societies tend to be wealthier, um, tend to be more prosperous, tend to be freer. And it makes sense. It's intuitive. Um, a lack of trust represents a high transaction cost. If you can't look across the table and trust with whom you're doing business, um, it, it is going to um, put a chill on investment. It's going to put a chill on entrepreneurship. Um, it's going to create a climate uh, where there is less innovation, where there's less employment, and where there's less wealth. And so trust matters. Uh, and as you say, it's, 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 it, it may seem a bit abstract, um, but uh, I think for policymakers, protecting the public's trust around markets, around uh, entrepreneurship is actually one of the more fundamental responsibilities um, that, that I think policymakers and those like us here at the Institute um, play. So if it's correct that trust matters, as you say, uh, and that trust is uh, in decline, certainly with respect to the private sector and possibly with respect to other kinds of institutions as well. Um, and, you know, logically, we could conclude that uh, Canada will be damaged by this loss of trust or put it a different way uh, or the other way around, Canada would benefit from finding a way to restore trust. How do we do that? that I mean, I can see in the abstract, I, I, I like that idea, but how do we restore trust uh, uh, once it's been lost on the part of uh, public opinion and politicians vis-a-vis, uh, -vis in this example, um, the private sector? Well, the, the first order of business um, is to is to recognize that there's a problem and not to minimize it or to neglect it or to or to simply assume that it's ignorance on the part of the on the part of the public. We talked earlier about some of the real factors um, that are contributing to this degree of distrust and unease. Uh, and I don't think you win marks that you build trust by telling people that they're stupid or that they're wrong. I think what it requires on the part of all of us is to think about the, the, the factors, think about the issues that are contributing to the problem and come up with positive solutions, productive ways to get at some of those issues. Uh, that's frankly the work of the McDonald Law Institute. I mean, that's what gets us up in the morning. Um, um, but unfortunately, it is not the way many others engage in the public policy discussion, particularly many in the business community, um, think about these issues. They come to Ottawa or they go to Queen's Park and they lobby to get a marginal improvement to this policy or that one, and maybe they win some and maybe they lose some. 
But if they don't get to the core of some of the issues we've been talking about, they may occasionally win the battle, but they will invariably lose the war and we will all be the worse off for it. And so um, when we think about our projects here at the Institute, when we think about how we engage the public, when we think about how we talk to policymakers about the issues facing Canada now and in the future, um, we increasingly, I think, are, are rooting that, that conceptualization, that thought process into questions around how do we restore public confidence and trust in the market system and in entrepreneurialism. Um, <clears throat> you've talked about uh, things that business leaders might do, but surely politicians have some responsibility here as well. And in fact, um, I think part of what you're saying is that politicians have sensed the public mood and are using public anger and resentment towards the private sector uh, to their own political advantage, rather than asking themselves how they might work with, uh, with the public and the business sector to restore trust. Uh, the short answer is yes. I think it's irresponsible on the part of some political actors um, to choose the path of least resistance um, and uh, to kind of leverage these um, nascent public feelings rather than trying to address them. I also think, uh, and I'd be interested in, in your perspective on this, I also think part of the problem is oftentimes policymakers misread uh, the, 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 the source of the problem or misread the root of the problem. One example that we've talked a bit about here at the Institute is the distinction between fairness and equality. Um, uh, there's a lot of political actors here in Canada who I think interpret some of the things that the public is saying as simply a matter of inequality, uh, simply um, a matter um, that redistribution can, can solve. And the truth is, uh, there's pretty, pretty compelling research that shows that actually the public isn't all that fussed about inequality. What the public is telling us is that they care about fairness. Um, there's a wonderful study um, out of Yale University that involved Paul Bloom. Um, and, and, and what they found was that actually people are prepared to accept even higher levels of unequal outcomes um, than we presently have, as long as they're confident that those outcomes have been achieved in a fair way. As the study puts it, quote, human beings, the research suggests, are, nat are, nat are not natural born socialists, but we do care about justice. And, and I think the reason why this is important is that policymakers can't start to solve some of these issues or address some of these issues, to put it more correctly, if they're not diagnosing or understanding the problem correctly. And here's a great example where I think raising top marginal tax rates um, actually doesn't even get at the issue um, that, it, that the public is trying to, to convey um, to people in positions of power. What, what, what do you think about the role of policymakers in kind of addressing these nascent concerns that we're starting to see more and more here in Canada? Well, I do think that uh, there's an extent to which uh, politicians are, um, you know, leveraging uh, public disquiet about whether or not business is uh, realizing 
profits and individuals are realizing high incomes fairly uh, in order to give cover to, uh, you know, programs uh, to achieve redistribution and so on uh, on the grounds that, well, you know, the issue is, as you say, the issue is one of equality. There's inequality. And if we, if we reduce that inequality, uh, we will have a, a better society. Um, I think what you're saying, and um, I certainly uh, very much of this view, uh, what you're saying is that um, Canadians uh, value a number of things. They don't have a single thing that matters most to them. Um, uh, they care about prosperity. They care about fairness. Uh, they care about formal equality in the sense of everybody equal before the law and things like that. Um, but they're amenable to appeals by politicians that say, well, since we all agree that uh, uh, people in business get ahead uh, only because they're powerful, only because the system is stacked against everybody else, uh, that, um, uh, that makes the private sector vulnerable to um, political attacks uh, and uh, undermines the future prosperity of Canada because um, realize that uh, this is a matter of, uh, of uh, political controversy, but uh, I, I have to say, I think the evidence is very strong that um, government does not create prosperity. Government can help create the conditions in which prosperity can be, can be created, but uh, uh, only the private sector can produce real prosperity by making goods and services that people actually want to buy at prices they're willing to pay. Government has never been good at that, uh, so we have we have a conflict here between the incentives uh, for politicians in the current climate of public opinion to demonize uh, the private sector and the future good of Canadians, which requires us to create the conditions in which the private sector can thrive. Um, May I just say in response to that? Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that there are some in the private sector who have made that rather easy. Uh, and I think that is something um, that we all need to be um, um, clear about. Uh, it seems to me that there's a distinction to be had here between business and markets. I know that's something you feel strongly about. Um, uh, the, the market system doesn't favor a particular industry or a particular firm. It's a it's a mechanism, it's a tool um, to, bring, um, to bring capital and ideas and labor and customers together more efficiently than any other way. Um, and what happens when we, we see these instances of bad corporate actors, um, they're not just diminishing their own brands or the public's perception about those particular firms, they're actually doing disservice to the entire system. And, I think there's an onus on those firms that are um, playing by the rules, those firms who have, have made a commitment to uh, a, a positive public reputation to call out those bad actors. Um, uh, you mentioned the price fixing case here in, here in Canada, uh, a case where pretty hard to defend 
um, pretty hard to defend the actions of these firms if, if ultimately um, this is established that, that this was going on and it appears to deep in the case. Um, and the risk is if somebody doesn't call them out, those who favor markets, what we'll witness is overreach by governments driven by voices on the other side of these issues. And so I think there's a real onus on um, proponents of markets, on, on the business community to one, call out those cases where, uh, where, where we're witnessing actions on the, on, the, on the part of bad actors, and also to think through the types of policy reforms or steps that can be taken to enable the market to function more effectively. Um, and that leads me to something I wanted to mention or ask you about. You've written, I mentioned earlier that the declining share of national income that's going to labor. Um, it was fixed for most of the 20th century. It is now falling across most of the OECD. To put it in some perspective, uh, here in Canada, um, here in Canada, it was 65 or 66 percent for some time. It's, it's fallen since then um, to about 55 percent, uh, which is a which is a similar, I think, trend line that we've seen elsewhere. Um, you know, there are those who say, well, you know, that's how things go and, and, uh, and, and there's not much to see here. But, it's, but if we want to sustain public support for the markets, if we want them to feel like the market system is serving them as well, I think there's an obligation on us to think about what steps ought to be taken, reasonable steps, um, to, to, to create conditions where the share of national income can be uh, can be restored. Um, and it's something you've written a newspaper column about. Do you want to just elaborate on that? Well, uh, I mean, one of the things that I think is absolutely essential, and it goes back to this uh, idea that what Canadians really uh, at bottom are seeking is not equality, but fairness. Um, I, I think one of the weaknesses of uh, the private sector part of the economy in Canada is that even when people break the rules, there doesn't seem to be a lot in the way of consequences. And uh, I, I think that this really feeds the, the, the sense that people have that the system is stacked uh, against uh, um, ordinary people and in favor of the people who are in the 1% or have power, have access to capital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I think I, I hear a lot of people uh, talk about the fact that uh, they never saw anybody go to jail because of the, you know, uh, uh, the banking crisis that uh, hit us in 2008. Um, I remember writing a newspaper column about the fact that uh, I had a Volkswagen diesel car, uh, which I happened to love, but which was sold to me by Volkswagen under fraudulent uh, conditions, uh, claiming that it uh, performed in a certain way when they'd installed cheat software to mislead regulators uh, in understanding how the car performed. Nobody went to jail for that. Um, and there are all kinds of uh, instances of, uh, you know, stock market manipulation, all, all kinds of things where uh, people uh, think that the, the powerful are getting away with murder. And uh, I, I, I think that 
if we want to restore trust in the private sector, people have to see that they, like everyone else, um, suffer consequences when they break the rules. And I think that's where the system is weakest. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, what does all this mean in practical terms, Sean, for policymakers, uh, for business, for um, electoral politics in Canada? Give us your prescriptions. Well, let me let me zero in on public policy because that's really what we do here at the Institute. Uh, one thing I think we've championed for the past couple of years, um, in light of these trends, in light of these uh, these perspectives that are uh, emerging, particularly to come back to this distinction between fairness and inequality, I think politicians, policymakers, need to champion an opportunity agenda. Uh, an agenda that enables the conditions uh, for people um, with different endowments to have an equal opportunity at pursuing their ambitions, uh, pursuing their aspirations. And the, the kind of macro framework that people who believe in on balance and the value of markets often talk about low competitive taxation, predictable regulation, um, strong intellectual property and so on, that's important. Uh, and and those, those policies cannot be neglected. But I do think there's room to start thinking about kind of the next layer of policies to, to get at some of these questions of opportunity. Um, some of the things we've talked about here at the Institute include um, liberalizing zoning regulations to um, and, uh, create a, a more affordable homeownership and housing um, in some of our major markets where the jobs and opportunity exist. We've talked about... Um, uh, wage subsidies, like the working income tax benefit, is an alternative uh, to to the kind of uh, the, the type of income support programs disassociated from work. Uh, we've we've been a national champion around um, creating the conditions for Indigenous people to be full participants in the national economy. Um, to say nothing of other groups that for too long have been outside the mainstream, like people with disability and New Canadians and others. Uh, I think uh, the politician or the party or the group of policymakers that can find the vocabulary, the lexicon, and the substance behind an opportunity agenda like that, I think can really strike at the heart of these nascent feelings that we're witnessing and we're seeing in the public. And not only, I think, enable the conditions uh, for uh, uh, more opportunity and, and, and more scope uh, for um, for prosperity, but start to reverse this trend of distrust and, and uncertainty that we're witnessing. Uh, and I think that would be a, a really positive thing for the country. Well, uh, Sean Spear, uh, Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald-Laurie Institute, I hope that uh, amongst the many listeners to our podcast today are some of the policymakers who uh, we hope we'll be listening to your good advice. Uh, I want to thank Sean, uh, uh, for, um, sharing with us his thoughts about, uh, trust and, uh, uh, politics and economics in Canada. Uh, I'm Brian Lee Crowley, the managing director of the McDonald Laurie Institute. You've been listening to pod bless Canada, which, uh, is our public policy podcast here at the McDonald Laurie Institute. 
Thanks so much for listening uh, and pod bless Canada.